Well, this morning we are continuing our series in the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. And uh, in reading about these verses this last week, I came across a statement by Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great Welsh preacher. Of course, he is no uh, newbie to hyperbolic language, but when he looked at these verses, he said famously that there are no two verses of greater importance in the whole of Scripture. Now, I would say that these verses are indeed very important and maybe the most important in Scripture, uh, perhaps at least the most important in this book, as we'll see. Now, here's why I say that. I believe that a, a right understanding of these verses will actually lead you down a, a path of experiencing the power of God for conversion, for growing in your faith through sanctification, and for preparing you so that you are ready to stand before Jesus Christ as your great judge on the last day. A right understanding of these verses can actually liberate you spiritually and empower you, but a wrong understanding can do the opposite. I believe if we wrongly understand these verses, it will lead to a sense of pride, a, a tiredness with trying to please God through obedience apart from faith, a kind of spiritual deadness and hopelessness. See, these verses are important for our lives spiritually. In fact, Augustinian monk Martin Luther, who many of you have heard of, read verse 17, for in it, speaking of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. When he read these verses, he actually responded, I hate that word in verse 17, the righteousness of God, by which all of his teachers had taught him that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. See, misunderstanding these verses led to a spiritual paralysis for Luther before the overwhelming guilt of his sin before a righteous judge led him to a sense of hopelessness. And maybe that's you this morning. You ask, how can news about the righteousness of God be good news for me? When I think about the righteousness of God, all I am filled with is a sense of maybe awe and wonder, but, but also dread, because I know about my own life, my sins past, present, and future, not to mention the thoughts that I have that are never visible before others. Well, here's the good news. These two verses provide the solution, not the problem. Now, just for context, to get us to the, the solution that these verses are, we need to understand where Paul is as he's writing these verses. Uh, he is in a context, as we have said, where he is writing a letter to an actual church in Rome. Uh, that church seems to be facing all kinds of friction because Jewish Christians have only recently been allowed to filter back into Rome, to a church that was before mostly Jewish, heavily, Jew uh, heavily Jewish influenced, but now is completely Gentile. Everything has changed, and the Jews feel like visitors in their own home. Now, Paul has, at this point, 
completed his third missionary journey, and he hopes to, to go and drop off that Jerusalem collection in Jerusalem before he goes to the far western edges of the empire of Rome. And on the way, he's hoping that he drops down uh, into Rome on his way to Spain to visit them. But his ultimate goal is to take the gospel further than he's taken it before. Now, Paul seems to write this letter to confirm that he's preaching the true gospel, but, but he also has other purposes. He's, he's showing that he really does love them, that he wants to be with them. He, he wants to show that the gospel that he and they preach is the one gospel that reconciles Jewish and Greek Christians, and that they ought to not only receive him with joy and have great fellowship with one another, but want to support him in taking the gospel to Spain. So this letter, at least, is a missionary letter. Now the rest of this letter actually is going to unpack these two verses, verses 16 and 17, answering the question of how the gospel of the righteousness of God is good news for us. Now you can see this in this outline that I've put up here. Um, you'll notice that he will go on to talk about why we need the gospel of righteousness in 118 to 320, and then how we receive the gospel of righteousness, the result of the gospel of righteousness, whether we can trust God's promises of righteousness, and how we can live out the gospel of righteousness. So you see, he's, he's really going to be unpacking these two verses throughout the rest of Romans. Now here's our big idea. If you're taking notes, a great thing to write down. It's that the gospel of God is the power of God to save everyone. The gospel of God is the power of God to save everyone. We'll see this in, in three ways, but first he begins in verse 16a, telling us that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. Now it's important when you're reading your Bible to pay attention to words, and sometimes small words carry significant import. Uh, you'll notice verse 16 begins with that little word for, which tells us, I believe, that Paul is continuing that idea that he had been talking about in the verses just before that, that he's both under obligation to preach the gospel to the nations, and he is eager to preach the gospel to the nations. Under obligation, eager, and here he continues, not ashamed. All of those ideas, they don't conflict with one another, they, they actually go hand in hand. I would hope that all of us feel obligated, eager, and unashamed to share the gospel. Now, here we find that it's clear that gospel clarity matters to Paul. So far, we've noticed that he's been speaking about the gospel in verse 1, 2, 9, 15, and now here in 16. And as we saw last week, th this word gospel had a meaning that came from its cultural context. This is a, a word that would have been used in a military situation where an army was fighting far from home while all of the, the people of their empire or city were hiding at home behind the gates, protected, locked in, waiting to hear news about how the battle had gone. And they would send a herald back running with news to let them know before they arrived that they had had victory. And, and good news, the gospel was a word that described that announcement of victory, victory. You can have joy. Things are good. And it's that same kind of message that we get in Romans from God. 
He sends us good news of a message that the victory has been won. It has been won in Christ. But why does Paul need to highlight that he's not ashamed of good news? I mean, good news seems like, kind of, like the kind of thing that you shouldn't need to apologize for, right? Like if I come to you and I say, hey, by the way, you just won a ton of money. Now, I'm not ashamed to tell you that. You'd say, you don't need to be ashamed. But why is Paul saying this? Well, uh, there are different answers that have been given to this. Many think Paul's using a literary device called a litotes. It's uh, this idea where you kind of say the opposite of what you mean to emphasize that opposite. So what he's really saying here, they say, is that Paul is proud of the gospel. Now that could be true, but I think it's more likely that Paul is responding to some of those accusations that we get hints of throughout the book of Romans. Roman Christians, some of them seem to be questioning either his ministry as an apostle or his message, the gospel, as though he has a different gospel. Now later, Paul seems to refute a claim that he teaches that faith in Jesus means you don't need to obey Jesus. Nuance matters when it comes to understanding the issues of your relationship with God. Small details matter. Something that is completely true and life-giving about God can turn on a dime and become heresy that promises death, not life if you're not paying close attention. And God's not trying to trick you, but we do need to pay close attention to what God's word says. Now we see this with Paul. It seems like some have heard that Paul teaches certain things. Did you hear what such and such said about what Paul said about the gospel? It's kind of like the telephone game. Y'all ever played that? Paul had his version in ancient Near East, where he explains his gospel, and he's talking about the freeness of salvation. And as he's preaching about salvation coming by faith alone, it gets down the line and gets to Rome, and there you hear Paul just invited everybody to a grand party, and there are no rules. You can do whatever you want. That's his gospel. That was not Paul's gospel. That's not what Paul said. And maybe some Romans sought to shame Paul for acting like a real apostle, given that he didn't know the earthly Christ, or preaching obedience doesn't matter. Or maybe they said that Paul is calling the Gentiles the elect of God. He hasn't been reading his Old Testament well. I mean, you can imagine that it would be difficult to preach to a church, knowing that some at least questioned your ministry and your message, and this was Paul's experience. Well, I don't think it's too big of a leap as we consider Paul not being ashamed of the gospel, whatever reasons they were, for us to ask ourselves, do we have ways or areas in our life where we are ashamed of the gospel? Maybe you felt ashamed of the gospel before in a number of ways, maybe in evangelism. You, you, you have been fearful of sharing the life-giving news of the reality that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh and lived a perfect life and died on a cross for you and all sinners and everybody's a sinner, 
and was raised from the dead to declare that anyone who puts their faith in Christ will be forgiven. And Jesus, he's not dead. He has ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father where he right now today mediates relationship for the people of God with God until a great day that's coming when he will come back to judge the living and the dead. And as you're thinking about that, as you're sitting at dinner with family members who do not, do not know Christ, maybe you have been quiet where prompted by the Holy Spirit because you are fearful that they will forevermore treat you like crazy country cousin Eddie. Like they will look at you like you are nuts. And what's going on in our hearts in those moments? Maybe there's some wisdom at play about timing. Maybe there's some wisdom at play about the way that you communicate it. Or maybe there's a sense of self-importance where you are more concerned about how people view you than you are about where they stand with God. Are you ashamed in those moments? Are there places where we need to repent? Are there times where we have a close friend that we have again not shared Christ with them even though the door has been flung wide open because we are fearful of losing that good relationship and we've already lost other relationships? The gospel has implications for our sanctification as well. Maybe this morning you don't really trust in the powerful saving effects of the gospel, not just at conversion, but in the way that God is still bringing about a deliverance in you from your, your sin that you are so chained towards. And I don't know how you feel in your sin, but I've had moments in my life where I feel like sin has just got me more than the gospel does. And like it just holds me underwater just long enough before I think I'm dead to give me one more breath and then take me under again. And it feels in those moments you begin to believe that the gospel doesn't have the kind of power that your sin does. Or maybe you feel very powerful over your sin. You feel like you're managing it quite well. And you can just continue on and that it will not ultimately take your life. You don't know how strong a hold and what power it has over you. You too aren't trusting the power of the gospel and the purpose of the gospel. But in either case, you don't really believe the gospel can change anything until maybe the last day when Jesus comes back. And, and can the gospel help your struggling marriage like your pastor or Christian friend suggests? Maybe you think, I just need some kind of, I don't know, Dr. Philism to fix my marriage. Don't you have some of that stuff? And can the gospel unite Christians with really broken relationships like the Jews and Gentiles or even the Christians who are throwing shade on Paul and Paul's message? Well, catch this. Here's the good news. Paul says, I've got two reasons that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Two reasons that I want to highlight in verses 16 and 17. And I believe the more that we understand these two reasons, the more that we can say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel either. Don't you want to be that person? I do, more and more. Well, here's the first one. Reason one, the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes. Why am I not ashamed? Because I believe it's the power of God to save everyone who believes. Now, the good news, it's not static. I know we talked about the gospel as news, as a message that comes to you, kind of like mail that you might receive in your mailbox. But here we find that this is 
the gospel of God. God has sent us mail through his messenger or apostle, Paul. And Paul says, the mail that I have to give to you is not just some static facts about God. This message is dynamic and it comes with power that can save you from the pit of hell and transform you into someone who looks more and more like Jesus until you are glorified. Now, you'll notice that he used this word power prior to this in verse 4 in association with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And now he's going to talk about the power of this gospel and its implications for our lives. He says, this is why I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek in verse 16. Now, the Greek word for power here is dunamis, a word that translates a Hebrew word for strength and might. Richard Longnecker was commenting on this, and he said the Old Testament does not use this word for power to describe forces of nature that were usually associated with the gods of the nations. No, it reserves this with respect to the creative, redemptive, and sustaining manifestations of the only true personal divine being. So don't miss this. The gospel of God is not only good news from God. If it was just that, it would be worthwhile and worthy. But the gospel of God also arrives with the dynamic power of our personal God coming and entering into our lives. See, this gospel both announces the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and explodes with powerful force in human history. That's what Paul says. But where and how does God flex this power? How's he flexing? Well, notice he explains, he says, for or with respect to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you'll remember that word for Greek is a word that meant someone whose nationality was not Jewish. So both Jews and non-Jews ethnically. It is for all of humanity. And of course, that would have addressed the, the division that was there. But here what we find is, is that Paul highlights two realities about the nature of how this power is played out. First, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone. Now, the Greek word for believes here, it actually comes from the same root for faith. So when you see that someone is believing, it's actually saying that someone is faithing. So everyone who has faith, biblical faith, they are saved. Now, we do not, in this verse as we look at it, Paul is emphasizing that salvation is a work of God's not ours. And faith is, it's not considered to be a work. We do not earn or merit salvation. In fact, one way to put this is that faith is the instrumental cause of salvation. It is the instrument through which God brings us to salvation, but it is not the efficient cause of our salvation in the sense that God is the one who powerfully saves. He is the one who gets the credit and the glory. Uh, Charles Cranfield comments this way. He says, for Paul, man's salvation is altogether. Not 
almost all together, but all together God's work. And the faith spoken of here is the openness to the gospel which God himself creates. Now, here Paul says what ultimately distinguishes the saved from the unsaved is not good works. It's not faith and works. It's not your parents' religion. It's not your ethnicity. It's not God grading on a kind of righteousness curve or anything else except believing, simply believing in God's gospel. Now, when I say simply believing in God's gospel, I know there are questions, and we're going to be answering those today and over the coming weeks about what does it mean to have the sign of simple faith. Faith does not seem simple, does it? Seems kind of like difficult and something to give your life towards. But I I love what elsewhere Lloyd-Jones said about faith. He says, if you're really preaching the gospel rightly, people are going to be accusing you of being an antinomian. That means somebody who does not believe that you have to do anything in response to the gospel. When it comes to salvation, salvation is about simple faith. Now, this really is what separates Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion says, if you do this, and this, and this, you will be saved if you do it well enough. Every other religion says, do, do, do. But Christianity is the one religion where God comes and says, this is my son, Jesus Christ, who has done it for you. That's the gospel, that Christ has done what we needed done. See, God has done all of the lifting, so as to say, and yes, that's a resurrection re- reference, in our salvation. He, he is the one who has done all of the work. We must believe. Now, as you think about that, if you're really thinking carefully about what that means, that is simultaneously completely liberating and terrifying at the same time. Terrified because I am utterly dependent on God who needs nothing from me. Does that make sense? Like I bring nothing to it. God brings it all. I have nothing to bargain for with God. It is an absolute free gift. That's terrifying. I like to earn my keep. God says I kept it for you. But not only that, it's liberating. It's liberating because if salvation is not based on my IQ or education, how much money I have in the bank or how much I'm projected to make, my ethnicity, who my parents are, and on and on, what that means is, second, the gospel really is for everyone. Do do you see it? It is for everyone. Anyone can get on in on this deal that God has created for us in Christ. Now, the Greek version of the Old Testament speaks of the salvation of the Jews from external enemies a great deal. They are often asking and praying for God's salvation against these nations that are oppressing them. Contemporary Christians speak of salvation often in a different way. They they talk about it in the sense of salvation or conversion. So somebody might ask you, when did you get saved? And your response is, well, you know, I got baptized when I was 10 years old or something like that. But what does Paul mean here? You know, Paul often, when he's talking about salvation, actually has 
that distant future in mind, that ultimate salvation that we long for when Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Here I think Paul is speaking of complete deliverance. Complete deliverance of us. Out of our sin nature, out of being in Adam to Christ. It is a a new day that is being ushered in for us in salvation. And this gospel from God, we are told the salvation that, that comes for us completely, including justification, sanctification, and glorification, all of those Asians, those things are coming to us. And what Paul wants us to hear is that gospel, that gospel from God, it is for every one without exception. See, this is a significant development in the Old Testament. You'll notice that he qualifies that very clearly when he says, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And boy, there's a lot of theology in that statement. You know, you know some read this and take this to mean that the Jew first meant that the Jews first heard the gospel in Acts, and you'll realize later the Gentiles hear it. Uh, some say that what this is talking about is sort of that Old Testament Jewish uh, folks heard it uh, first, and then later uh, those in Christ heard the gospel Still yet, there are others who, are, when they are looking at uh, this idea of to the Jew first and later to the Gentile, they say that there really is no distinction now between Jews and Gentiles. And I believe that's a really hard question that Paul is going to unpack through the rest of this letter. But for now, I would say the Jews possess some kind of priority in the plan of salvation that Paul is going to flesh out as he goes. Now, we'll see the tension between these two throughout the letter. Uh, Doug Moo, uh, he, he's explaining this, and he says that juxtaposition of these two statements, salvation for everyone and to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, that tension is going to be here throughout the letter of Romans. But let's not lose sight of what Paul's saying here. God has chosen to use the one true gospel to demonstrate his power to save anyone. I'm just curious this morning, have you lost sight of the power of God to save anyone? You know, I know things are, are crazy on the news. Maybe things are crazy at home. Maybe you feel like things are crazy on the interstate on the way to church. And in all of that craziness, you have become really distracted, distracted by jobs and family issues and the cares of this world, and you have lost sight of the power of God on display saving the nations. Maybe you need this reminder, I know I do, that the power of the gospel is able to save anyone and everyone. I love what the late evangelist Dwight L. Moody said, speaking of this reality. He said, the gospel is like a lion. All the preacher really has to do is open the door of the cage and get out of the way. See, Paul's not ashamed to share the good news of what the eternal son did in coming and taking on flesh to live that perfectly righteous life that none of us have and none of us will. To die a sacrificial death 
for us and be raised from the dead so that we might be made right with God. Why was he not fearful of that? Why was he not ashamed? Why did he sense an eagerness to come to them? It's because the gospel itself is the power of God to save everyone and thus anyone. Paul trusts that when he speaks, thus saith the Lord, that it itself, the message, not what people think of him, but the message itself is able to transform them even despite him and his weakness, his frailty, and people's bad opinions of him. That is a powerful gospel. He trusts that the gospel always comes with power. It comes with power when he's at home. It comes with the same power when he goes to Rome. It comes with power at all times and with all people to the person that should be in GQ, to the person that has either a high or a low IQ. It always comes with the power that is needed to save. It comes with power to the judgmental legalist that you don't like to be around and to the antinomian who you want to be at all the parties. Both of them need the power of the gospel, and the gospel always comes with that power. See, Paul's never ashamed of this one gospel because it's the power of gospel to save people like this also from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he knows that God has promised that on that last day, people from every one of those categories and every one of those people groups will be gathered before his throne worshiping the holy name of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, do you struggle to evangelize because you have forgotten about the power of the gospel. Do you struggle to evangelize with your kids, with your neighbors, with your friends? You know, maybe you think you'll leave evangelism to those who have the gift of evangelism. That's not your gift. Your gift is sitting on the couch and watching football. That's me. But we too, I believe, are obligated, like Paul, to share the gospel. We too are called to be eager and unashamed to share the gospel. I mean, when Jesus was speaking to the disciples in Matthew 28, didn't he say, go and make disciples of all nations? And then what would those, nations, those, those, those uh, disciples that they made, what would they do? What were they called to do after that? Just sit and say, mission accomplished? No, it's like wash and repeat. Go now and make disciples of all nations. And then those disciples will make disciples, and those will make disciples, and it continues to go. That's why we have some two billion people on planet Earth right now who in some way claim Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying it's all clean and right and the theology is always good, but the message got out. So are we sharing Christ in the way that we have been called to? Let me encourage you to, to trust in the power of the gospel in evangelism and just Four or five quick ways. First, pray for a no-brainer opportunity to share the gospel and start reading the Bible, getting ready to share the gospel with someone. Like, just pray, God, give me an opportunity. I can't tell you how many times God has shown up and done that. In fact, um, it was just uh, last night or yesterday, my family were going through Romans, and we take prayer requests, and one of the prayer requests was, uh, Jesus was like, Lord, just help us be able to share the gospel with our neighbors. Like, I think that sometimes we have not opportunities because we ask not for opportunities. So pray. Pray that God also would give you a very obvious one, right? 
uh, I was talking to a guy that I, I meet with this last week, and he said, yeah, it's crazy the opportunities I'm getting to share Jesus Christ right now. Like, I got in the car, and this guy was like, hey, can I ride with you? I was like, uh, okay, I don't know who you are. And he got in the car, and he started saying like, hey, would you tell me more about Jesus? That's a no-brainer opportunity to share the gospel, right? Like, you're like, Lord, can you give me that kind of opportunity? And give me the words to say. Like, be equipping me along the way so that I'm ready when those divine appointments show up, where you answer my prayer. Second, pray for confidence in the power of the gospel so that when those opportunities arise, you're eager. You're eager. You know that this is what I've been made for. God has recreated me because he wants me to make much of him. See, guilt over not sharing the gospel, that's one motivation to share the gospel more, right? Like, man, this is what Christians are supposed to do. I don't do it. I'm not acting like a Christian. So share the gospel more. Hey, look, whatever gets you to share the gospel, that's great. But I think there's a better way, a better way that we should aim for. That is a confidence in the power and the goodness of the gospel. Asking that God would motivate us by that. Now, like, I'm happy for you to work off guilt until power sets in. But pray for power. Third, talk about the gospel in your home and with others who are saved. You know, make the gospel the thing that you're constantly talking about. So that when an opportunities to talk about the gospel come up, it's not like you're talking about a foreign language. It's the thing that you love. It's the thing that you talk about. You love Christ. You love to talk about Christ. Fourth, Ask people about where they are spiritually. You know, this is just a great entrance way into getting a pulse on where people are. I can't tell you how often I've just stumbled into some conversation about where somebody is with Christ just by asking them, how are you doing spiritually? You can think about your own questions, but be proactive, engage, ask people. And fifth, tell them about Jesus. Don't just tell them about how Jesus changed your life. You can do that. Please do that. Talk about how everything is different because of who Jesus is. But don't forget to mention the fact that you are a sinner, guilty before God, worthy and destined of his wrath, and everything was changed because you put faith in his death on the cross for you. Don't forget that piece and that he's alive, that he was raised from the dead. That's kind of important too. See, Jesus dying for our sins brings us to God. That's one reason that he was not ashamed. But second, Paul also gives us the second reason for not being ashamed. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith in verse 17. See, verse 17 explains how the gospel of God is the power for salvation for everyone. He says it this way. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Paul's going to unpack this relationship between the gospel of God and the righteousness of God throughout this letter, as we said before. But at this point, it's, I think, helpful for us just to ask ourselves, what is the righteousness of God? Now, we could look at a number of different places, but I believe that what Paul has in mind are some biblical Old Testament categories and when you think about what the Old Testament says about the righteousness of God, it, it says some different stuff. Um, so I, I think there are three main ways that the, the Old Testament deals with it that we're going to look at. So what is the righteousness of God? You'll remember that there was a way to look at it, that Martin Luther looked at it, that left him paralyzed. It, it wasn't news that made him 
rejoice. It was not news that made him feel saved, delivered, free. He, he felt like he was under a perpetual dread and fear. Well, that's because he misunderstood it. Now, here's the first way that some have taken the righteousness of God. Uh, some think that the righteousness of God, or have said, that it's speaking here of that righteousness of God that is an attribute of God, his perfect righteousness or justice. Now, you can see how this would be terrifying if God is making an open display of his perfect justice, which in one sense is beautiful because we all long for perfect righteousness and justice. We, we want that for ourselves. But from another perspective, if you realize who you are as a sinner before a just judge, then it is also terrifying. And that's the way that Martin Luther took it. Well, the Old Testament speaks of it this way. In fact, Asaph in Psalm 50 verse 6, he says, the heavens declare his righteousness, speaking of God's. For God himself is judge. He's the great judge. But this is why Luther said, who can stand before this, ju this just and righteous judge? There's a second way it's been taken that refers to the activity of God's covenant faithfulness. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. This is a more complicated view. Um, but in the Old Testament, sometimes it speaks of the righteousness of God in the sense of his faithfulness, like in Psalm 31, 1, where David says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me in your righteousness be delivered. See, this is the view known as the new perspective on Paul, where they understand the righteousness of God is God's faithfulness to his covenant in initially justifying believers, having right relationship with him, and making them a member of the covenant community. Now, th this is a lot. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but the point is that it's grace that gets you in to the covenant people of God, but it's works that keep you in. Does that make sense? So like, you get in by grace, but if you mess up, you're out. I think that's the misunderstanding of righteousness of God here. There's some other places I believe that is described. Now here's the third one. It's where the righteousness of God gives people a new status. This is that earth-shaking doctrine that severed the, the Protestant churches from the church in Rome. It was the doctrine whereby they understood that the righteousness of God actually comes with salvation in its wings. There's a real sense in which God's righteousness saves a people for himself. Now, we see this in the Old Testament as well. In fact, Isaiah speaks of this kind of saving righteousness in Isaiah 51, 5 to 8, where he is coupling righteousness and salvation throughout Here's what he says, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the people. The coastlands hope for me, and my, for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear away like a garment, and they who dwell in it die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, 
and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the approach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. He wants us to see that God's righteousness is a saving righteousness here in Isaiah 51. I believe this is the same way that Paul is speaking of it in verses 16 to 17. Now, you can see how how that kind of thing would liberate your soul. That this righteousness of God is not a standard by which you are being judged guilty, but instead it is God's righteousness coming to save a people for himself. Now the question is, how is God actually, how is his saving righteousness actually revealed to us? Well, the imagery here is is that of a courtroom. This idea of righteousness or justification, it's court kind of language. And God is seen as this just judge who is actually justifying sinners. He's giving them a, a new official legal standing. Now, in this forensic image, God makes them righteous or justifies them. And and there are really, uh, I believe, two pictures that could be going on here. You know, there are really two ways the Bible talks about a man being justified. The first is always to obey God's law in every way. Uh, Romans 10.5, Paul is speaking and he says, Moses spoke of a righteousness based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, the problem according to the Bible is that nobody has ever accomplished this except Jesus. Almost everyone clings to self-righteousness, arguing that they're not that bad. Or they are better than others. Or they just say, you can't judge me. But only Jesus is righteous enough to meet God's standards. So if we're all guilty, then what's the good news? Well, it's that Jesus didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners like you and me. See, he comes uh, for the second way to receive saving righteousness, and it's the saving righteousness of God by faith. See, Paul is insisting here this righteousness of God can only be experienced through faith. The righteousness of God is received from faith for faith. Now, that's a weird phrase, from faith for faith. Some have taken it in different ways. Some say that it's speaking of that, again, faith in the Old Testament to a kind of faith in the New Testament. Some have said that this is going from God's faithfulness to man's faith or faithfulness. But I think this likely means something more like faith from first to last. Or based on a faith at the beginning and then on to an ever-increasing experience of faith and grace, as one author put it. See, God's hidden purposes for saving everyone by faith through the power of the gospel has been revealed. When people have faith in God, we see that that is the power of God on display. God did that. It's a new day. This is the reality that awakened and liberated Martin Luther. In fact, as he was talking about this moment, he called it the Justitia Alienium. You're like, what does that mean? It's an alien righteousness that came to him. This is the very thing that our brother Jim was praying about this morning. In other words, it was in this moment that he understood that he wasn't coming before a righteous judge and expected 
to sort of produce righteousness in and of himself to appease the righteous judge. No, instead, he said, when I came before this just righteous judge, I knew that I had nothing to bring before him that would merit a case by which I would leave just. But it was in that moment that I saw another righteousness, a righteousness outside of myself, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that was extra nos, outside of myself, that I looked to. It was the righteousness of Jesus Christ that was accredited to my account. And it was in that righteousness that I had hope it could stand before God. And Luther said, when I discovered that, I was born again by the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise, they swung open and I walked through. That was the moment that changed everything, that I understood that it was nothing of me and all of Christ that I had any hope before this just judge. Yet did you catch that Paul points to an Old Testament text to explain this reality? Very interesting, Habakkuk 2.4. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. If you go and you read scholars on this, most of them punt because the Hebrew is really hard of this text, the, the Greek version is really hard, and the way that Paul interprets is really difficult as well. But here's my stab. Habakkuk's an interesting prophet because he opens up asking God for justice because he's looking around and Jews are unjust towards Jews. And he's like, God, are you just blind? Do you not see this? Are you sleeping on this? And then God shows up with an answer. And his answer is, no, I've seen this. I'm doing something you wouldn't believe if I told you. I'm sending the Chaldeans, those Babylonians in, to devastate you and they're going to devastate others. Now, that's one of those things where the problem you began with, small compared to the problem that you're left with. So now my just God is using an unjust people to bring about justice on unjust Jews. That gets complicated. And so he asked God, how can you do this? Will anyone save us? Is there any mercy with you? What's fascinating though, that is that Habakkuk's talking about this. He's not really talking about, but wait a minute, the Jews are just and the Babylonians are not just. No, it's more like, Okay, we're wicked, but they're more wicked. So you can't let the more wicked guys hurt the less wicked guys because we have the covenant. What's fascinating there is, is that God's answer back to Habakkuk is that ultimately the proud will get caught in their nets, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And that's often taken as the man will live by his faithfulness. None in the book are going to escape God's just wrath except those who have a faith that is faithful. Only those who put their faith in Yahweh are going to live. Now, I take this really as a rough equivalent of what God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted or accredited to him as righteousness. See, this is the doctrine of sola fide, salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. See, we are saved by faith alone, period. There's no comma there. It is faith alone that saves us. But a careful study of the people of God shows a strong link between faith and faithfulness, or faith and works. 
And Paul's going to unpack that in the coming weeks. But for now, Jesus Christ has arrived with a more powerful experience of salvation than the Old Testament believers experience. And this salvation is available for everyone who believes. If you are here and you hear this, it is for you. Now let me close with really three practical applications about this believing in Christ, believing in God for salvation, his salvation. First, Trinity Bible Church, let's be a people who are unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of saving righteousness of God to everyone who believes. I hope that we're known for that. A people who are happily unashamed about the good news of the gospel. A people who share it, who talk about it, who love the glory in it. We ought to love to sing about the power of God's saving righteousness on display in the faith of those who are present here. When we sing and we declare who God is, that he has saved us, when we declare our faith verbally, that is God's power on display amongst us. We can sing full throttle with Augustus Toppleday who said, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You know, this ought to propel us to tell others about the saving righteousness of Jesus Christ. This gospel comes with power to save, so we should give our time and our money to this cause above all else. I love to hear stories in our congregation about people who love to share Christ. Uh, Ruben Martinez sharing Christ with uh, pretty much anybody who will listen. His friends, co-workers, the Jehovah's Witness that comes to his door that gets more than they bid off. Like he loves to share Christ. Jennifer Perkins who started a, a Bible study at work to share others about Jesus at work. Peter Grove, who's hosting a weekly evangelistic Bible study for singles, and on and on, stories throughout our congregation of people who love to share Christ. I hope that we just hear more and more of the stories like that. Let me encourage you. If you, if you want to share Christ with someone, just start asking people if they'd be willing to read the book of Romans with you. You've gotten a head start. Just sit down and read the word and trust that God's power is going to show up and do more than what you could expect your own feeble voice to be able to accomplish. Second, Christian, salvation by faith alone doesn't mean that you are saved by faith that is alone. Now, I know that this is a little early, but I just want to make sure we don't leave with like false impressions, wrong impressions, nuance matters. You, you are saved by faith alone, period. That faith, if it's true, is not alone. So James 1.17 says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is talking to people with another problem, that, what Paul's trying to answer here. But James goes on to explain, if you're thinking to yourself, well, isn't like faith enough, like just faith alone? It doesn't need anything else. Well, there's a, a, other verses we need to think about. Like when James says in 2.19, even demons believe and shudder. Why? Well, because they believe true things about God, but they are not believing in a saving way, and they do not have fruits of the Spirit and evidence of conversion. See, a good question to ask yourself, or better yet, another Christian who knows you, is what kind of fruit do you see in my life? We should all have friends like that, one-to-one -one discipleship, community groups. Those are meant to help you build those kind of relationships. What kind of fruit do you have in your life? You know, what's about a woman, a woman who spent <clears throat> an hour telling me about her son, who was a Christian, and had never shown any fruit. He was baptized when he was 10, 
never had any change in life, addicted to drugs his whole life, had really sinned against her and others horribly, but she ended saying, but you know, once saved and always saved. I was like, I don't know if once saved, always saved means what I thought it meant. Because she understood that you could have faith without any evidence of faithfulness. Now, I later understood what this was. It was tied to a a kind of theology that we have pervasively throughout the valley, which is, I don't believe the true gospel. Now, there's this popular valley uh, doctrine. It's been spreading for decades, and it's called free grace theology. And this is what it says, that faith is mere mental assent, and it doesn't require any change in your life. You can be justified and righteous before God based on Christ's righteousness and yet never have any life change. Now, I believe that we are saved by faith alone. I believe in deathbed conversions. I believe there was one thief on the cross next to Jesus who is with him in paradise today. And yet, I believe that the normal testimony of the Bible is that if you are saved by faith alone, then you are also one who will be transformed more and more into the image of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, from one degree of glory to the next. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us. Over time, we will change. If we don't have much time, you might not see the change. More time, you see more change. So if you don't have fruit, you might just be what Matthew Mead calls an almost Christian, which isn't a true Christian. That's a dangerous place to be. Third, maybe you're running from the gospel in one of two ways this morning. Maybe you're here and and you're not a Christian. Maybe you don't even know if you're not a Christian, you're trying to figure that out. And that really could look in a a number of different ways. Maybe one, you think of God's righteousness as kind of burdensome, like a straitjacket that's meant to keep you from being happy. So when you think about God, church, all you think about is law and rules, and you don't like law and rules, and you're running from God because you're running from the law that you have no hope in, that you do not believe could bring you any kind of joy or life that actually feels dead to you. I think that there's something in you that God's power needs to bring to life to to change that so that you see things rightly. But for now, if that's you, know that God sent his son to obey God in every way that you might have peace with God. In other words, the answer to that fear is not to continue to look at the law and see how low you are. Do that, but you need to also have an eye towards Christ and what Christ has done for you and being perfectly righteous on your account. Or or maybe you're running to the law. You know, some people run away from it, some people run to it, and you feel like you're basically a good person and that God will accept you based on your own works. The law brings you comfort. It's not like a straitjacket. It's kind of like a warm blanket. But I think if you were honest, you would know that the only reason that the law brings you comfort is because you have edited that law so that you feel like you fit into the circle of obedience. The law ought to leave all of us clearly understanding that none is righteous. So if it's making you feel righteous, you're not looking at it and understanding it rightly. Don't miss this, though. Whether you are running from the law or to the law, you are guilty before God where you stand. And the only hope of salvation that you have is in the person and righteous life of Jesus Christ who obeyed the Father in every single way so that by faith you can receive his righteous life for your account. That is the sweetest exchange that you will ever get. If you haven't put your faith in that Christ, please don't leave today without talking to me about it or without 
Please put your faith in that Christ.